Hi, everybody. Thanks for being here on the podcast. I am so delighted to bring you this conversation today with Rachel Levy-Lesser. She is, well, you're going to see, she's just like full of joy and hope and humor. And we're talking about grief and loss. Rachel has a lot to offer. Her mom died 18 years ago, and she has been living and carrying grief for a really long time. And she offers us a lot of her insight and her experience and her hopefulness and her baking show. Welcome to Grief is My Side Hustle. I'm your host, Megan Reardon-Jarvis, and I am really delighted today to be here with Rachel Levy-Lesser. She and I have been trading compliments on the interwebs for quite some time, and I am so excited she's going to share an hour with us to talk about carrying grief and loss over time. Rachel, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy to be with you. I feel like we're old friends. I feel like we're old friends. We were just talking off mic about all the people we have in common, which is um, always super fun and maybe not all that random in the end. So I want to read your bio first, just assuming that not everybody already knows who you are and all the extraordinary work that you're doing. So I'm going to read that. And then we're just going to dive into talking about grief and loss. So Rachel's articles and essays have appeared in various outlets, including the Huffington Post, Glamour.com, Parenting.com, Veller, Modern Loss, Medium, the Philadelphia Jewish Exponent. Her work has been featured in the anthologies Letters for Motherless Daughters and Moms Don't Have Time To. She is a summa cum laude graduate of the University of Pennsylvania and received her MBA from the Ross School of Business at the University of Michigan. I'm like wildly intimidated by these things. In her previous life, she worked as a marketing professional. She worked on the business side of Time Inc. and magazines, including InStyle, People, and Real Simple. Rachel is the host of Blaze Baking with Rach, an online baking show on a mighty blaze where she interviews cookbook authors as she bakes with them. Rachel lives in Pennsylvania with her husband and her two children, Life's Accessories, which we're going to talk about, is your fourth book. Is that as excruciating to sit through? Or are you like, wow, I am. Yeah. I am and I amazing. don't know who put that summa cum laude in there because that's kind of embarrassing. I swear that wasn't in there. Before. Why? Do ne- never be embarrassed. That My father is- brings that up when I say something silly. Or- well, I mean, I think that I say that- dumb. when I say something dumb, he goes, were you summa? <laughs> <laughs> Um, Well, I don't think that we should be ever dipping away from our achievements, but I'll try to use all my highest vocabulary words. Thank you for that lovely intro. I've, you know, I've done a lot of press and I hear that a lot. I kind of tune out when somebody reads my bio, but. I'm terrible at reading bios, so I don't know what that is. I just want to jump always right into the conversation. So where should we start? Do you want to start with your gorgeous book? Would that be a good way to sort of give people an introduction into your world of grief and loss? Sure. Thank you for that lovely intro. Thank you for saying my book is gorgeous. I have it in my hands right now, which, and I told you off mic too, I'm recording from my closet right now, which a lot of people have done. And there's a lot going on in my house today. So that's why I'm here, but I feel very connected to my accessories. There you go. Pocket books here. So it's called Life's Accessories, a memoir and a fashion guide. And it came out in the fall of 2019. And as you said, it's my fourth book. And I didn't know that I had a fourth book in me. As of now, I don't know if I have a fifth book in me, but I I think there is one. The reason I wrote it, I would say, is because my mom died in 2004. I was 29. She was 57. And I started to think about writing the book in probably maybe 2016. So, you know, 14 years later, whatever. (laughs) That's my sum of math. Not even that. It came out. (laughs) I came out 15 years later, but whatever. Because I sort of had this moment um, or several moments of being like, you know what? Like, I'm okay. I'm really happy. I, I have this great life when all these wonderful things and, you know, back in 2004 and in the six years leading up to her death, she was sick for a long time. I remember just thinking, wow, I'm just going to be messed up forever. Like I'm not going to be able to live a life without her. She was my person. And it just hit me over a period of a few months that I was okay. And I felt like 
there was a story to tell in that journey. And I know journey is an overused word, but it's a great word of how I got from a completely messed up person to a really happy, well-adjusted self-actualized person, perhaps even more self-actualized than I'd ever been when she was alive and we were happy and doing great stuff together. So then I thought I have to tell the story. Now I always need an outline because that's how I operate. And my favorite genre of reading and writing is memoir. And I'd read so many different memoirs that used a framework to tell a story. For example, like a cookbook or a joke book or just like so many different things. And I was like, I could tell it through accessories. Mm. I should say I was a bit inspired by a book that was a little bit different called um, Love, Loss and What I Wore which came out in 1996 by Eileen uh, Beckelman. And she actually blurred my book, which was such a oh, great. And her book turned into a Nora Ephron play that I saw in New York with my aunt. And so in her book, a lot of the, her whole life is sort of journeyed through drawings of her clothing. It's a lot about the drawings. So anyway, I had this idea that I could tell this story through accessories. And that's kind of where I started. Sorry, that's a long answer. <laughs> What are you talking about? It's a perfect answer. And I, so there are like a number of different threads that I want to go down. I want to ask specifically because it's written in these like short stories inside. So I'd love for you to talk about one specifically, but before we do that, you you said a couple of times when my mom was sick and dying and we didn't, we didn't tell the audience what she died of. So my mom was diagnosed in 1998 with a very rare form of cancer called ocular melanoma, which is, it's like a melanoma. People think of skin melanomas, but it's a melanoma that lives in your eye. I'm always learning more about it. I get checked every year for my eyes because I have light eyes like my mom and she had this very virulent disease. And I go to Will's Eye Hospital in Philadelphia where she was treated. And I will say at my last checkup, which was just a month ago, I get checked every year. I asked about ocular melanoma and how rare it was because I always want to learn more. And they said most ophthalmologists in their lifetime, in their however many years of practice, will never see a case of this. So that hit me like it was it was like being struck by lightning. She had this melanoma in her eye in 1998. She had, she was treated for it at Will's Eye Hospital. She was stable for several years. And then three years into it, it was determined that it had um, metastasized to her liver, which is never great. And then she lived for three more years after that with experimental treatments. And back then she really was one for the record books because at the point when she was diagnosed with the metastatic tumors. Most people live for six weeks and she lived for another three years. I do think that is a big part of her story. And now I guess my story and my family's story in that she had fabulous healthcare, wonderful doctors, an amazing attitude. And she did not stop living until the day she died. Yeah. Yeah. I have the sentence. I know a little bit about that because you've written about these things in various places, her illness in various places. And part of the thing that I, that I think about in grief and loss is the way people hold their stories. You know, there are stories where it's like, it was the most random, extraordinary thing that never should have happened, which is your mom's story. And then there are stories where like, these are the kinds of things that happen to people. Mm -hmm. Just like everything in grief, one way is not better than the other. But you know, when we're sifting and shaping ourselves and finding ourselves drawn to support, sometimes it's helpful to know that, right? That like, wow, I also have this other friend whose mother had this incredibly rare form of cancer and she just totally got it. My dad's death from cancer was basically, I mean, he died a year and three days after his diagnosis. So my process was that he was dying. We knew he was dying and he died. It was not a, oh, maybe, and a back and forth. And so I have found that when I'm sitting with people who have cancer stories, I make sense to them in that way. So I'm pointing it out just to our audience to know that there are so many ways in which we're in these stories. And one, and the one that sort of feeds your loss is this, it, it, and it's progressive and there's lots of intervention. And one thing, this is my long lead up to my question, which is you said at one point, I just thought I'll never be okay from this. And then I realized I was okay. Can you deepen into that word okay? Like when you were in that chaotic idea, that right. space where you were, I, what I would say actively grieving, cause you understood that there was loss that you were already a part of mm-hmm. what did, what were you fearful would never be. And yeah. then what did you discover? I love, because that word. Okay. Is one that comes up a lot. 
Right. That's a great question. And I'm going to give you a long-winded answer because when you brought up, um, I'm sorry for your loss, obviously, I know. And a year is is different than six years, is different than suddenly, is different than 20 years. And so over the six-year period where my mom was sick, you're right, there were interventions, there were, there was hope, there was despair. And everyone in my family dealt with it differently. I, for the first three years, was in complete denial and thought that she would be totally okay, as was most of my family. I think it's so interesting. Well, I think my whole family thinks it's so interesting that I have embraced grief. You've embraced grief as your side hustle. My husband was joking that grief may be my main hustle. (laughs) Because when my mom was sick, she really didn't, I don't want to say she didn't want to talk about it, but. I said she lived till the day she died. She lived, she traveled, she did her business. She went out, she played golf. The the things that she did while she was sick were amazing. And I remember being over her house one day, my childhood house, and somebody called from who got her name from a doctor because he was going through what she was going through. And she just didn't even want to talk to him. Like this was not her thing at all. So it's interesting that I embraced this. Maybe it's because we didn't talk about it when she was sick. Yeah. So there were three years where I was just completely you know, not interested in thinking about her dying when it was, when it was metastasized, I had no choice. I was, I write about this in the book in a particular chapter called flea socks will keep you warm at the university of insomnia at Ann Arbor, which was when I was living in Michigan in grad school and not sleeping because of the anxiety and sadness I was feeling because I was realizing that my mom was going to die and I was never going to be okay. And that's what the first time I saw a therapist out there and she helped me through this immensely in letting me see, you know, and this is, I think what a good therapist will do bit by bit. It's not like I walked in there and she said, listen, your mom's going to die. That's not healthy. But she let me see that it was a possibility and how it was going to go. So when I talk about, okay, you know, over the next three years, there were periods of, okay, you know, I, I just want more time with her. I just want more time with her. And then it was, I want her, I want her to live to see my baby. Cause I was pregnant. I want her to live to see my brother get married. I want her to, there were certain goals. And then towards the end, I remember just saying to myself, I don't want her to suffer. I just want her to close her eyes. And she did. So, you know, those were different levels, I guess, of me being okay with what was going on. But then there were a number of years where I just wasn't, okay. I mean, I kept busy. I am really good at keeping busy. When she died, I had a new baby. I was working. I had a father who I felt very responsible for and friends and family. I remember one of my mom's good friends took me out to lunch and really wanted to see how I was doing and really wanted to talk to me about it. And I said, I'm good. I'm just keeping busy. So for a long time, I kept busy and then things hit me when I least expected them to hit me. You know, there were moments I remember being in my office, getting there early in the morning before anybody was there. And the next thing I remember, I was lying down below my desk in a sweat. So I had some sort of, I don't know if I want to call it a panic attack or anxiety attack. I was just dealing with a lot of stuff that, that was a little bit of a wake up call. I was in therapy again. I just kind of needed time and space to do things. And eventually over time, I guess I did deal with things in the sense of, you know, And it's not just about therapy. It's about just kind of like living your life and having my kids and being with my friends and doing fun things and letting other people move on. Like my father, who has a lovely girlfriend, as I call him, fake wife, who I actually set him up with. And that's just really wonderful. And just, you know, so I guess the word okay to me is like being happy. And I'm just as happy as I was with my wonderful mother in my life, who was my person. And I, my mother would, be, you know, people tell me she'd be so proud of you, all this accomplishments. I just think she'd be happy that I'm happy. And she, even when she was really sick, for example, when I was in Michigan, I was like, mom, I'm going to come home. Like, I'm not going to finish school. She's like, no, you are not. You are not to use this as a crutch. You are not to be my nurse. You, you live your life. So I hope that answered your question. So much. It answered the question. And one of the things that I think it really highlights which is so important. I think when we're talking about grief work, you know, there, there are different, there's fresh grief, which I think is, is something that people think of as like, I don't know, the first weeks, months, year of being in grief. I think actually fresh grief hits us again and again, you know, I'm going to ask you to talk a little bit about what's been going on lately in your family and how grief has shown up because we talked about that off mic, but people have ideas 
particularly when they have children who are grieving, parents will be like, okay, you know, her mother died. I'm bringing her to therapy because we need to make sure that this is all okay. And it's difficult or really dear friends will say, oh my gosh, this terrible thing happened. Can you talk to this person? And I can't talk to that person. I can't save them from the process that they have to go through. And what you described is the beauty of what yours looked like, which was an ebb and flow over time that you got to be distracted by having a baby. And that sounds like that was good and part of your healthy process. And, you know, that maybe you were totally okay and fine and just doing your life and the elements of the grief, I think of it as sort of this energy that we carry that you massaged it into you in different ways over time. And that is just the truth of what grief is. We're doing it forever. It doesn't always mean that we're crying, but it will do things like you're somewhere, everybody else is having an experience that's like everybody's emotionally excited or high or so happy. And you are sort of alone in your moment where you're missing your person or there's, there's joy for you and there's pain. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it doesn't mean anybody's doing anything wrong. It just means that when you become a griever, you're a griever forever and that your way is your way. So tell us a little bit, I want to sweep back around to what's been going on, what I just referenced about family events that you just had and some insight into the grief, but tell us a little bit about like, first of all, the titles on your chapters of your book are so great. (laughs) There's a lot of, for a book that is ostensibly about grieving, there's so much humor in it. It's really, really, really funny. funny And parts of it are lighthearted. And I like to mix the humor with the the heavy stuff. That's been probably one of my coping mechanisms. And I make it okay for people to, you know, to talk about things to, you know, we still make fun of my mom and in funny ways. And that's, that's always good to do too. Yeah. Right. Because they are who they are. They're not safe. They deserve to be mocked, whether they're alive or dead or Or in relationship to some of the things that I do. My husband will say, your mother would not have liked that. No, no, no. Yeah. It's funny because the book that I have coming out is the, is ostensibly about when I had PTSD after my mom died. And many, many, many people will say to me, like, your mother would be so proud. I'm like, oh no, you clearly didn't know my mother. She would be mortified that I, A, had this experience and B, wrote about it. Like, would she ultimately be happy that I found a way to health through writing? Yes. Would she want me to be writing about her? No. I think so, that's too. I feel like my mom is like Rach, like it's enough. All right. It's enough. Yeah. I think our mothers maybe would have been friends. What's one of the just pick a chapter that you really either loved writing or that was hard that you know has a has a nugget for you that when you look at it, it really you have strong feeling about it. Yeah. So I there's there thank you for saying that. There are some really fun chapters in there for sure. There's you know, the one about, one about the great team captain necklace and the greatest honor of my life, which is about, you know, being the key team captain at camp was the greatest honor of my life, which by the way is a hundred percent true. Yep. Um, there's one about being totally dumped by a college boyfriend in a necklace. And there's, there are funny parts about that. There's a crazy boss situation, living in New York city, working for a magazine company. So there is some fun stuff in there. And, but I will say there's one chapter that to me to write it, it was the hardest thing I've ever written. My head hurt. My whole body hurt. I felt like I was having like an out of body experience writing it. And I, and it's, it's, it's the one about hair. It's called hair pulled back in a twilly. And I actually have the twilly right here. I was wearing my hair back. And that came to me. So in terms of like writing the book, there were more chapters that I had to cut, but I also didn't want to make any chapter force. Like I didn't want to throw in there was one about a pocketbook and a Broadway show, but it didn't make sense. So this one was about, my husband had bought me this Twilly, this like hair ribbon when he was traveling in Europe for work right before my mother died. And it was a very sweet gesture. And that was kind of about that time right before my mother died where everybody was worried about everybody and it was a mess. And then when she did die, the day of the funeral, I decided to wear my hair pulled back, which I, I don't normally wear my hair pulled back, but my mother always loved my hair pulled back. She always said, you look so pretty with your hair pulled back. And I remember the last season of Sex in the City, she called me up in the middle to tell me, Sarah Jessica Parker looks so good with her hair pulled back. You really should pull your hair back more. <laughs> so the morning of the funeral, I pulled my hair back uh, sort of as a nod to my mother and part of it that I didn't yeah. feel like doing my hair. And I put this twilly in it, which is this long purple silk hair ribbon. I mean, I was 20 
29 years old. It's like, who pulls a ribbon in their hair? And I wore it to the funeral, obviously. And I don't remember that much about the funeral. That's, you know, you talk about big days, big days aren't so big for me. It's just, I kind of went through the motions. I gave the eulogy, which my mother asked me to write, which was a big deal for her to ask me that. And then about a week later, I went to see my therapist just to talk a week after my mom died and kind of paraphrasing what I'd write in the book. But I remember thinking that I felt like I could breathe for the first time. Like I'd lived in this world for a week without my mom and I was okay. And the therapist, also an excellent therapist, started, oh, she's okay. She came to the funeral, which was a big deal. You know, that doesn't always happen. She knew my mom. So, but, you know, she started to ask me about what I was feeling and thinking. And to be honest, I didn't remember that much. And she said, I noticed your hair in this purple ribbon. And she gave me her interpretation of what was going on, which I always liken to like hearing the teacher's answers after you take the test the right ones. Right. So she said, when I was watching you up there, I was picturing a mother brushing her daughter's hair and putting in a ribbon. And that's just an image that stuck with me. And I thought, huh, that's kind of random. And we talked a little bit about what that meant and what it meant to me. And I told her I didn't know. And I thought about it for a long time, maybe years. (laughs) And I eventually came to the realization that what the therapist was trying to get me to see was that I should maybe maintain an image of my mother brushing my hair or being with me or patting me on the shoulder or telling me I'm doing okay. And it was my therapist way of telling me that your mother's always going to be with you. And that I didn't even realize that until I wrote it that many years later, I still have the Twilly. I, that was such a gift that she gave me Yeah, Uh, that therapist is no longer living when she died, I, cause I, I, you know, had kept up on her. I was just like, she really gave me a huge, huge gift. So God, that, I mean, first of all, I'm glad you picked that chapter. That chapter totally choked me up when I read it. And I think you're talking about, well, you're talking about two things that I love. One is you're talking about therapy and one you're talking about the process of writing. So I'm always interested to talk to people who are writers and who already know how to construct a memoir and understand how to create an arc, you know, it's, it's like having learned the tools or you already are a skier, you already are a tennis player, and then discovering that tennis feels good while you're grieving. Right. Mm -hmm. And then there's this other whole host of people. And I do a free grief writing workshop for mostly for these folks who are just finding themselves compelled to write that there is an energy that needs to get out of them and that it's happening through words. And this neuroscience scientist, Dr. Lisa Schulman, who was on the podcast a while back, talked our listeners and me through this notion that like memories do get stuck by trauma in the brain Mm -hmm. and that our deep understandings from a spiritual sense, although this didn't come so much from her, but our deep understandings from a spiritual sense are also sort of locked in there. And just like meditation is a practice that we use in order to employ it when we need it, I think there are some core understandings around grief and loss and the meanings of them that we work to find. And that writing is one way that we work to find it. I have been really deeply struck by, and and C.S. Lewis has a quote that's sort of the opposite of this. His is that we read to, to see ourselves Mm-hmm. And I think actually I write to come to know myself, that it's, that it's just an interpersonal therapeutic process. And when I'm doing therapy with people, I'm usually just dropping little things in the room to see what they pick up. I, so yeah. I imagine in that session, your therapist told you 70, you know, and I noticed this and I noticed that, but the, the hair ribbon is the one that clicks because it locked into something that you needed, right? I mean, that's that's therapy at its best is that we don't know where we're going. We're just willing to be in the passenger side of the car with you and make suggestions about what, what we might like to do. And I just love, I love that even that, that understanding and coming to know that you need to hold your mom as a mom, mm-hmm. little girl sense, that that is treasured and important to you. I just- 
I think yeah. that is so thank you for clarifying that even more. And now that I'm 47 years old and I'm a mom to a 15 year old and an 18 year old who's a senior in high school, you know, I, I've been a mom for a long time. I haven't had a mom for a long time. And so that ribbon, that whole image that's letting me be loved like a, like a mom loves a daughter and nobody loves you yeah. like your mother. Nobody treats you like your mother. I just got a treat where I, I flew to Savannah last weekend or two weekends ago to visit my mom's sister to surprise her for her 80th birthday. And my mom was very close to her sister. I was always very close to her sister and she's not my mom, but she's the closest thing I'll ever have. And so when I'm with her, it's a treat for many reasons, but also because I get to let myself be mothered. And that's not something I get. It's not something I allow myself to do. I am not good at letting other people take care of me in that sense. So no, I totally, I totally get what you mean. And I think writing can be so healing. I've actually taught writing and journaling workshops for grief at Gilda's club, which is a cancer support community. So I get so much out of writing. I I also get so much out of reading. I just finished between two kingdoms. Oh, so Um, good. Holy moly, is that book good. And I'm so fascinated, by the way, with healing, both physically and mentally. And like, I love stories of the body healing. I just, I, I love those parts in the movies, like in Rocky, where they're building yeah. back up. Like, yeah. I'm so interested in what you can do. I, I, I was talking to my friend who's also a therapist about that the other day. I'm fascinated by that kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, it sounds like, and it, I think it comes out in your writing as well that you're, you're wired for hope. You know, there are some people that really, they need a handhold. They need a tether to believe that there's hope. And I think some of that is what we do in trauma therapy is we say like, I get that you can't see your way forward or that you're, that it's all too obscure. Just, you know, lean on my belief that you can do this because the human body really is wired. It's like wired to survive. It is. And, you know, grief is one of those things that many, many people are like, I, there's no way I'm going to be able to live a life after this. And then as you sort of described, you look around one day and you're like, wow, it's actually kind of, okay. Do I wish that they died? Of course not. That's not what anyone is saying. So, you know, it feels to me like you're talking about kind of like always having the hope inside of you that things are going to be, you know, that they're going to work out. Okay. You also mentioned, will you just tell folks about the, you, you, the weekend in general, you had said when we were off mic, that it was a a weekend that you were missing your mom. So even though she was, it was 18 years ago, that the family events, they, they bring it up, right? Yeah. I had said to you off mic that it's funny that I'm recording with you now because, you know, it's been 18 years since my mom's been gone. And I've heard you talk about this before, you know, the birthday, the anniversary of the death, the this, the that, those, those don't really do much for me. I mean, I feel like my life is so busy and full, thankfully that sometimes I don't even have time to remember, you know, like I sometimes think, oh, everyone's going to call me today, which is lovely, but I'm not in the zone. So just funny, the last two weekends I mentioned two weeks ago, I surprised my aunt for her 80th in Savannah, which first of all was a big deal to do in a COVID world. And it was just a really meaningful weekend for me. My mom's sister lived right here near all of us when we were all growing up. And so they were a twosome, we were a threesome. My, she moved away after my mom died. And so, and that was great, you know, for her, they retired many, many good reasons for them to move away. And I miss her, but I will say when I'm with her, it's a blessing. But when I'm with her, I'm also always looking for my mom. Like, where is she? You know, there's a lot of triggers, but it was really great to have that time together I felt my mom with me. I thought she would have been really proud of everybody. And then the next weekend, which was just last weekend, it was my nephew's bar mitzvah, my brother's son, which was also a big deal to have a party in COVID. It was very friendly, 50 people outside and a lot of people zooming. And that was, you know, it was obviously about my nephew being a bar mitzvah, but for me, it felt like a day of a family reckoning. That's all I can say. You know, after the matriarch dies, a lot of stuff happens. And it was just really nice to be together like that. People always tell me what a good speaker I am. I do a lot of PR. My brother is like this like savant type speaker. I mean, the things that he can say are amazing. He was able in his speech to talk about how my mom had brought out the sunshine, what she would have think, thought of all of us the good and the bad, he mentioned to, you know, sort of write a love poem to her and at the same time, welcome 
my dad's girlfriend, who's like his wife and her whole family into our family. And it was a day. Like I came home from that mentally and physically exhausted. My kids went out with their friends. I was like, I'm going to bed. <laughs> this is a lot. So yeah, there's just been a lot going on and, and that's good. And then, you know, Monday morning I was back at work and work. doing my thing and I'm not going to sit and dwell on that. I'm happy we had it. And who knows when the next moment will come. I thought about going to the cemetery to see my mom, to tell her about all this. Yeah. I don't, the cemetery is only like a half hour from my house. I don't go that often at all because I don't, I don't enjoy going. And I, I don't think she's there. And I also feel like I don't need that focus to talk to her. Some people do. I totally get that. So there's a couple of things that you're talking about, which, you know, I say this in, in the podcast often, which is like, I'm asking you this question as a podcaster, but I'm really just asking it as myself because I'm four years into my dad, two years into my mom's death. And that's a lot, Megan, that's a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot. And, and the thing that I, that I notice when you are talking is that you have a, like a peace and an ease. And so that to me is like, oh, okay. I know that's going to be out there. That must exist out there. But so I did PTSD treatment. I went into inpatient because I had such terrible images of my mom being dead. And one of the things that the person talked to me about, which was super surreal because I have a same script in my office when I'm talking to people. So I was like, you're saying the words that I use, but they were talking about the importance of integrating past a person's death. Right. And there's modern day grief theory that, you know, talks about this continuing bonds and, but I, I think it's an amazing thing that I'm not sure I exactly, ha- you know, I know, I, let me say it like this. I haven't done that yet. Mm-hmm. So there's this element of like the way that I mostly feel her presence is in loss. Mm-hmm. That I mostly notice that she is not here and, and that I wish she was here mm-hmm. with my dad. I have these experiences where something will happen. Like he really liked tennis and he really liked ice skating and he really liked opera. So if anything happens in those worlds, I'm like, God damn it. He would have loved to see this. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's an acknowledgement that he isn't here, but it isn't the same as the front facing first moment pain. That's so interesting. Yeah. I think about my mom, by the way, a lot in events of the world. I, yeah. I'll say to my, I said to my husband today, what would she have thought of COVID? I mean, and right. he goes, she would have had the best masks, which is true. <laughs> but there have been so many things. And I think that's actually very healthy. My father lost his father a long time ago. My father, I think was in his early forties and I didn't really know my grandfather. I don't remember him that well, but I, even now my father would say, oh my God, what would you think of the iPhone? Like he's still amazed by that. Right. Um, so I think that's a very healthy, normal thing to feel, to think, what would they think of this? And the world moves on and all that. But to the thought of only, only feeling your mom in the sense of loss, I get that too. Cause I felt that for a long time, but then I can't explain how or why, but it, it did shift for me and that felt good. Yeah. I mean, I'm just noticing it, right? Like, like, I don't know when it shifted with my dad, my attachment to my dad was very different, but, but I do, I do just sort of notice. And, and when you're talking about your mom with, with, I think just the word that comes to me, like just more peace, Mm -hmm. it, it, it's like a little hope line, like a little Mm -hmm. line of hope and a little piece where I'm like, I wonder if that's something that happens if I work it, because I do believe that grief is something you have to do. Mm-hmm. I think, I think it's a verb. And so I, I'm, I'm just putting this out there that I'm curious about this. And I'm wondering, can you, t- can you take us into like either talking about the accessories? I also would love for you to talk about your baking because I know, mm-hmm. tell people about your baking show. And I also know, cause I've, I've watched a bunch of them and they're right. so fun. You're, you are so fun. That because you're, you are throwing stuff in there about family and about history and about baking and all of that. So when I'm watching you do that, it's not crying, but it does look like grief work to me, the same way writing is in the same way, yeah. you know, for me podcasting is, but, but tell us about that. Tell us about the yeah. baking and how that, how that also 
is a feature that you use in your grief work. Yeah. Well, the accessories came very naturally. That is just a part of who I am. And I'm always over accessorized. I think it was Coco Chanel had a line about over accessorizing and like, yeah, it was like to, you know, take three things take off. It, right. And obviously she's Coco Chanel. So like big props to her, but I don't agree with that. I think the more, the better. Our, our listeners can't see, but Rachel's wearing probably at least 50 necklaces right oh, now. Definitely. Bracelets. I mean, come on now. It's just, just what you do. Just yeah. And by the way, my side note, my daughter who's 15 is finally getting, she was a little bit of a late bloomer in the accessorizing. And okay. my husband says that she's my doll. So I have all this stuff from my grandmother, my mother. I'm always just like dressing her up like a little doll, a 15 year old doll. It's fun. I love it. I love um, it. So that came more naturally. The baking. So I'll, I'll tell you sort of more of like how it came to be, but in the beginning, first of all, I've always loved to bake. I don't love to cook, but I love to bake. I just always have baking to me. You know, some people are intimidated by baking because it's a science. I'm more intimidated by cooking. I, I love baking. I, first of all, I have a huge sweet tooth. My friend Melanie and I always say we're going to open up a restaurant one day where she's going to make the salads and I'm going to make the desserts because that's all I need is salads and desserts. That's it. I don't like real food. As long as you have seltzer water, I'm coming. Oh, seltzer is good too. And wine and coffee. That's it. That's all you need. Those are the five food groups. All I need. So in the beginning of the pandemic in March of 2020, where nobody was doing anything, my friend Felice um, called me and was like, my my girls want to make your cookies because I make these cookies, which have become a little famous. I said, you know what? Let's zoom it. Let's do it. So I had the girls on and it was cute. And then the next week I invited a bigger group of girlfriends and their kids And then that kind of grew throughout the spring of 2020. It was just this thing on my own. I posted it on Facebook. People kept coming and it was recipes that I knew. My mother-in-law is a really good baker. So Mm -hmm. I used a lot of her recipes. And that was kind of funny too. Like at one point I interviewed her and I was like, where did you, where did you get the recipe for the cream cheese brownies that I always loved? She goes, just from the back of the cream cheese box, (laughs) you know? Right. That's where some of the best recipes do come from, I think. But anyway, so that kind of happened. And then the summer came, summer of 2020. I've lost count of time because everybody. I know me too. And I stopped the baking show because it was summer and everybody was outside and we thought things were getting better, but not really. And then, but I was still doing these. I mean, I was baking a lot and I was also just like doing it for friends through a variety of people that we know in common, I got hooked up with a mighty blaze, which is this wonderful organization that was started in the beginning of the pandemic by New York times bestselling authors, Jenna Blum and Caroline Levitt. Basically when all their friends book tours got canceled in the spring of 2020, they thought we have to help them out of the goodness of their own hearts. They basically threw up interviews on zoom and PS it's a year and a half later, bazillion followers, 10 weekly shows, you know, there's a show called Lit Chick, Mighty Mysteries, Authors Love Bookstores, Friday Frontliners, The Thoughtful Bro, all these different themes. And so when I started talking to Jen, I initially came on board to help with some promotion of Pub Day Tuesdays, where we would get authors new books. And then she said to me, you know, being somebody who can read people pretty well and who's a very generous person said, you, I think you should have a show. You're really good at this. What do you like to do? And I said, I like to bake. And then she's like, you know what? We're going to have cookbook authors on and you're going to bake with them. And that's how it came to be. And it was born in January of 2021. I do the show about twice a month. I have on various cookbook authors and sometimes regular authors and we bake together and you're right. We do talk about a lot of things. I had an author on Beth Riccanati the other day. We made Hala together and she talked about how Hala kind of helped her journey into wellness. I'm having another author on in, in a couple weeks named Caroline Wright, who she's written a lot about her own battle with, with brain cancer, actually. And she wow. wrote a children's book about baking. It's not all about loss. I mean, we had on Zibby right. Owen, who I know you know, and her sister-in-law, and they talked about her, her mother-in-law niece, but we've had on Magnolia Bakery, Elisa Tori, Cheryl Day from back in the day. We've had on Joanne Chang from Flower Baker. I mean, some of these people that I get to talk to, I'm amazed. And, you know, they always say things to me like, well, you're a seasoned baker. And I think people think I was like trained at the Culinary right. Institute. I was like, dude, I started off with like slice and bake when I was seven years old. Back to your earlier point, which we talked a little bit about before off my baking to me, in the pandemic was something that I could do to keep my hands and mind busy, right? For a lot of people, everybody was baking bread, but baking for me also is something that I can do to be busy. I remember the summer of 2015, which was 11 years after losing my mother, both my kids were away at sleepaway camp. This was the first time my husband was away for the weekend. 
And for the first time in 11 years, I had like time to myself <laughs> and I cried the whole day. Yeah. And I texted my husband. I was like, what, what is happening? I should be doing things. And so I do think sometimes I bake to keep busy and I don't think that's a bad thing. I think it's therapeutic. I think there's a lot of great things about it. I think I've met some really cool people through baking. I've yeah. learned people's stories, you know, on the flip side, there's some people who are like totally intimidated by baking and oh, yeah. a lot about the mechanics of it. So yeah, I hope that answers your question. Baking has brought a lot to my life and I hope to others through this blaze baking with rage. And I just read it. Definitely watch it. It's so yeah. fun. And right. it is, I mean, I follow you on, on Instagram or Facebook or something. And so I, I see when it's happening and it is, you know, yes, it's ostensibly about baking, but it's also a lovely distraction from, you know, I don't mean it this way, but like baking doesn't really matter. It's a, it's a lovely distraction. And that's sort of how you're describing it. And the other thing that I was thinking when you were talking was that a lot of the work that I am doing with people who are carrying grief over time is just handing them tools. And it's really important to say to people, distraction is a tool. You're not better. You're not doing grief better because you're like in it all the moments of the day and you've journaled and you've read memoirs and you've been crying. Distraction and dissociation 100% are a tool. And, and I, this is relatively new in my life. Let's say the past eight years. One of the things that I talk to people about a lot is meditation and everybody's image of meditation is like, you know, saffron robes and you're right (laughs) with the bells and the fingertips and all that stuff. And when you really get deep into meditation, it's similar to yoga in the sense that like, yeah, there are some yogas that are really athletic and feel like Ashtanga doing a million sun salutations. Like you might as well have gone for a run. There are other yogas that are deep, deep fascia stretching, like yin yoga. And you can't just show up to whatever yoga class is going on. You got to know what makes sense for you. Baking is one of those activities that's really meditative for some people. And when I say meditative, I mean in the clinical sense of what it does to your brain, that you're in your body, using your body, your hands, you're washing your hands, you're covering them with flour, you're stirring, your smells. Meditation means that you are in your body, the five senses experience and activating your brain in a way that doesn't typically otherwise happen and allows them to communicate with each other. So, and I'm just throwing this in as like a, you know, this is on my website somewhere, but walking can be meditative. Yes. hundred percent. You know, I didn't realize this is the part that I didn't realize about eight years ago, I got a treadmill. I've always been an outside runner and I, I actually never ran with music. I always just ran mostly because when I started running, I would have had to have been carrying like a, a Walkman with me. So right. I, I, did you know, I didn't, I didn't have music. And then I started running with a group and we were running half marathons and then we were walking and running and talking, but I never really ran with music. And when I got the treadmill, I think my husband was like, I'll set it up so you can watch the TV. And the entire experience of running changed the yeah. entire experience of running. And I was talking to a meditative guru and he was like, do you run? And I said, well, I do this. And he was like, oh, well, there's this meditative running where all you're doing is listening to your breath. And that's how I used to run. I used to listen to my breath. I used to pace myself with my breath. And I was like, oh my God, that's why I loved running is that was my form of meditation. But there's literally a laughing meditation, which is like using laughter. We know this. We know that like when you laugh, belly laugh really hard, which by the way, this was on Ted Lasso in the past episode, but so many people talk about laughing what they believe is so inappropriately at a funeral or something like that. But laughter is neuro, you know, neuro pathways wise is right. It's right next to sorrow and grief in terms of how your body holds it. And it's so meditative at the same time. Yeah. Right. Or or, I just saw that episode of Ted Lasso, the best. Yeah. It's so good. It's so, I mean, it's so good. I, I, well, that's a whole nother conversation. I could talk about that. By the way, what you were saying about the baking being meditative or walking or running or yoga, I do all of those activities, but I would say too, this just happened to me on Sunday, not even about like deep grief or whatever. Like, I don't know, Sunday, I kind of just had a little bit of the Sunday blues. We had a big weekend. There was a lot of things going on, my kids running around and I was a little bit overwhelmed. Like, wait, what do I do next? And I baked a cake. (laughs) I was just like, I got to get in the kitchen. I got to do it. Sometimes it's like one foot forward in front of the other, right? And it's better than sitting and feeling sorry for yourself or feeling overwhelmed or complaining to somebody. 
I mean, I'm not perfect at you. You said I was full of hope and I love hearing that. And that is true, but obviously I have my moments where I complain to people. Hope and super cranky. I mean, I, you know, I talk about going down and getting back up all the time. And that's okay too. Yeah. That that's the process. And because I, I think of myself as full of hope. I think of myself as mostly happy, which was, you know, partly why, grief, really concrete grief was so hard because I couldn't find my parts that felt happy. I was so overwhelmed mm-hmm. by grief, but you know, the other thing that I'm wondering about, and you know, feel free to answer this in any kind of way, but you have this extended family that you talk about and you reference and you write about. And I have a big family of five brothers and sisters. And one of the things that we are still in the throes of is sort of figuring out how to navigate with a staff member down you know, two staff members down, right? Like my mom was Grand Central Station for the communication between us. And there are a lot of us and that's not typical for families, but I do think a lot about and have conversations with people about the pain associated with kind of having to navigate a family differently when, uh, and it doesn't mean, you know, I'm not talking about like your abuser died. I'm just talking about like your, you know, your dad used to be the one who planned the 4th of July and he's not there. And so who's going to plan the 4th of July? I'm just curious. Cause you guys are 18 years in, like, was that a bumpy process? Did it sort of happen smooth? Are you still in it? You know, I know families that like somebody, we lost a member and we have, you know, that brother went out into a satellite situation. He's never come back in. So I'm just curious. Like, that's a great question. So as far as like my specific situation, my mom died 18 years ago. I will say, I feel like I grew up in this unique family because you obviously have a a lot of siblings. I have one brother, but I also have, I grew up, it's like, it's kind of crazy. Actually. I grew up in a town where my grandparents lived there. My mom's sister and her family and kids live there. My dad's brother and his, my, me and my cousins all went to the same schools. I thought, you know, people have, people have cousins that they never see. I thought your cousins were like your siblings. I thought that that was my whole world. And every, it wasn't even every holiday. It was every Sunday night we had dinner together and, and every holiday was a big holiday. And my grandmother had 40 people. And then my aunt had 40 people. And then my mother had 40 people and my mother never cooked. So everybody had to cook for her, but she's at a lovely table. And, you know, that was the holidays were, and we all wore coat and tie, which I didn't realize was weird either until I met other people. <laughs> so we had this, I mean, to me, it was like, it was really idyllic. When I grew up and my mom died, I realized not everything is totally idyllic. So I said that just because my mom died in 2004, her father died in 2002 and her mother died in 2001. So there was a lot at once. Do you know what I mean? And it was also at a time where we were in our twenties and people were moving away and getting married and then eventually having kids. And so this, everybody show up for Thanksgiving down the road did not happen after 2004 and it was never the same. So I think a lot about it a lot on the holidays, but I will also say that we have, um, developed our new traditions. I definitely took over the role, I'll say, of Julie McCoy, who my mother was. Like, I have a lot of the holidays and I love to do it and talk about accessories. You know, I have all the dishes and the tablecloths oh, yeah. and I use them and I do it. And so it's not the same people. You know, there's, and every year is different. By the way, that is something my mother used to say about the holidays. Every year is different and I don't stand on ceremony. I am so happy that I had that childhood that I had and the memories that I have, which I now realize is so unique, but my kids also knockwood have an amazing, I hope my son's 18. He's going to college next year. We'll have their childhood memories of all the stuff we did with various family members in our generation, plus friends. Yes, there are Rocky roads and there were years yeah. where, you know, the first Thanksgiving, what do we do? And there were years where I tried to escape and there were things like that for holidays. But over time, you just kind of find a new rhythm. And I've, I've welcomed everyone in at every step. Um, there are times that were better than others. I also, I, I do a lot of things I think that I think my mom would have liked, like yeah. using the real dishes and the real napkins. But that's because I like to do that. Yeah. Not everyone has to do that. Yeah. yeah. We just, we just packed up this summer, my parents' house and sold it, which was alternately really lovely and beautiful and excruciating. And my mom was an accessories person, which I thought a lot about when you were, you know, there were a lot of handbags that I'm not sure where she brought them to, but 
you know, I kept one, I didn't keep another. And now I'm like, why didn't I keep that other? But she had a lot of that stuff and, and there isn't a sub. No mm-hmm. one, I, I don't want, you know, t- tiny Easter shaped dishes and I have China, I've never used it. So I, I felt this sort of not deep sense of betrayal. That's not exactly right. Just sort of like, uh, like, sorry for her that there wasn't a natural person to take on all of the things that she had sort of loved and also needing to unhook and give permission. Like it doesn't mean we don't love her because we didn't love all of her things. I think that's important to realize. I mean, I, so just to say, like, I do use all her things and stuff, but since we just redid our kitchen and I, and I got rid of a lot of stuff and I called up my aunt and I was like, is it okay if I get rid of the monogram napkins? She's like, I got rid of those 20 years ago. Like I needed permission. I just talked to a friend through it, a friend who's moving. She was like, do I have to keep this? And I was like, bless and release sister. Someone else will love it. I've been doing a lot of that. My husband says Marie Kondo. He goes, thank you. He yeah. makes fun of me because I told him about this. I go, just say thank you and get rid of it. Right, get rid of it. But I think you also, you you covered something, maybe not even intentionally, which is so important, which is that families grow over time, no matter what happens. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that period that you were talking about, you were referencing the holidays of like, well, people were dating and, you know, there's a 13 year span in between my youngest sister and my oldest sister. And my sister, my oldest sister worked at Macy's. So on Thanksgiving, she had to work the Macy's Day Parade. Mm-hmm. So like early, there was a, you know, seat at the table that was missing. And eventually my parents who were really gracious about it, just sort of like kind of let that go and new traditions have formed, which are important, but we never went back to the ones that were. And it sounds like for your family, you were able to kind of accommodate. It was a lot of loss, grandparents and your mom sort of all in a short span of time, but it was coming alongside of people going to other people's Yeah, homes. people moving away. I will say too, I credit my mother with this because she really was the one who always said to me, like, you know, she's like, you know, Mother's Day, it's a Hallmark holiday, whatever. Like, she's like, and I, I talk to you every day. I see you all, like these holidays. It's just a day. She never stood on ceremony for that. And I try to do that. And I hope to do that with my kids one day, if they have a boyfriend or girlfriend's house, like it's a day, you know? And I think that showed us a lot during COVID. I mean, last year on Thanksgiving, it was the four of us sitting at our kitchen table and it was totally fine. We zoomed in with like, it's a day. Yeah, And you cannot right. stand on ceremony for these holidays or for these anniversaries or for the birthdays. I feel very strongly about that. I just feel like, or any day, you know, allow yourself to have a bad day, allow yourself to have a good day. I'm kind of on a soapbox here, but I, I think that's really no, important. No, I, I love your healthy to, to get past that too. I love your soapbox. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you because I think kind of what you're also saying, which is really grief related. You know, I think a lot of us prep for like all those anniversaries that you referenced over the, over our talk today. And I think you and I are the same in this sense that like, it isn't the anniversaries are, I see those ones coming. Those aren't the things that take me out at the knees. And also they don't really matter in that way. Like I didn't celebrate my dad's birthday in some kind of big way when he was alive. Like I would have sent him a card and called him, but that would have been the whole of it. So generally the anniversaries are not the things I might, I, I tend to have some funk like a couple of weeks before those days. Mm -hmm. And so then when I get to the days, I'm like, oh, it's okay. But there are these other moments I think where you know, with my dad, I feel sort of the like, oh, he was a presence in my life. He would have loved that book, that movie, that thing. Mm-hmm. And with my mom, I feel it more. I, I interviewed this woman actually who grew up in my in my town, Jessica Dulong, and she wrote this extraordinary book called Saved at the Seawall about the boat rescue on 9-11. And I just still cannot believe that my mom doesn't know that Jessica Dulong grew up to be this incredible writer who wrote a story, you know, who was there and present at 9-11 because those are the kinds of books my mother devoured. She devoured real stories. She couldn't believe anyone would bother with fiction. Those are just lies. There's so many amazing stories to read. And I, I don't know that I will ever get over the fact that she can't, she, it, that book should have been just in her hands first because that's how much she would have loved it. And it's those so are- Because, sorry, I didn't mean to drop you, but like, I think about like the stuff about me that my mom would, I don't really think so much about the stuff about me. Like people tell me, oh, your mom would be so proud. Your mom would love this. I tell my mom things like, mom, my friend, like she loved all my friends. And when I tell them what have, what's become of people, like, I feel like it would like blow her mind. So that and is you, so funny. I totally relate to that. 
you just said, so this references back and I'm going to let you go in a second. I promise. Cause I could talk to you forever, but, but even what you just said, which is you tell your mom in your head is that example of the continuing bonds that you have an ongoing quote unquote living relationship with her mm-hmm. now. I hope that doesn't it, sound weird. It doesn't. No, no, it's, it doesn't, I mean, nothing is weird in grief, nothing, right. but I do, I don't have that. I don't know if I'm ever going to have it. And I wish I did. So that's the piece that I wonder about. And I don't actually, I mean, I've had a lot of, there's been a lot of death in my life and I don't with anyone, not my friend who died when I was 24. I don't talk to him, my grandparents, like I don't have that. And I want, I really do deeply wonder about that. I wonder about if I were to pick up a prayer or a spiritual practice, meaning I sat down and tried to do it rather than, you know, waited for it to happen spontaneously. And who knows, I'll circle back with you one day, one side, but I'm so grateful when people are talking about it because I think there are things that happen naturally for us that are us moving towards healing with grief that we need to share with other people in case they it's never occurred to them. I think there are things that that's going to work for you and it will never be a part of another griever's life. And as I said before, grieving is a verb. It's something that we have to do. And just like anything else, you know, if you were, if you were saying, well, I'm really trying to, I don't know, step into my feminism. There's a lot of ways that you could practice and read about and do it's the same with grief. No, it's true. I consider myself on that journey. Yeah. No, I will just tell you like, my mom used to talk to herself. We have all these, we have all these jokes. Like I remember we, we shopped all the time together. So that's all we did. (laughs) No, people always think that. So I remember one time being in a store, I think it was in New York city and I, she went outside and I, I looked out the window and I could just see her face. And then there was a brick wall and I thought, Oh, she must be talking to somebody she knows. And I said, mom, who are you talking to? She goes, I'm just talking to myself. And she used to say, it's very healthy to talk to yourself. And it is very healthy to talk to yourself because when I say, when I'm talking to my mom, I mean, I really am kind of talking to myself, Of course, but I'm telling, I'm telling her things and you know, I'll joke to my brother and my husband. Oh, I I told mom that. And they'll say, well, what did she say? And I said, she said it was good. And they know I'm joking, but it's a way for me to process my thoughts for me to, you know, I valued her opinion so much. And sometimes if I, if I'm having a problem or I, maybe I did something that I knew I shouldn't have done, I tell her, but it's really telling myself and I don't wait for her to respond, but it's just, it's like me like validating myself. She um, continues to be, even though she's not alive on this earth, a resource in your life. You know, a lot of what my mom, my mom really was for me much more than like advice or even like a, a, a tender mom. She was someone who was like, no way. Yeah. Or, oh my God. I'm so yeah. excited. She just amplified whatever it was that I was telling her. She wanted to hear every detail. That's she was awesome. Probably- I was probably the only person who wanted to hear every detail. And so that's how I miss her. I miss her when something happens and I'm like, oh my God, it would be embarrassing to tell this to friends or it would sound like bragging if I did this. And it never was any of those things with my mom. She just wanted to hear every single thing. And then she was going to ask me about it 20 times from now. And without that element, I definitely feel the loss of it. There are things where I'm like, shit, I just wish I could really tell her this. But I think part of what what I'm going to emulate, part of what I'm going to take away from our conversation is the idea that it can be done, that there is maybe, I don't know, in my mind, I have this like fence, like a fence that you can jump over where the memory of them, because I have a thousand hours of her doing that, the memory that I have memorized is enough for me to, to have the active relationship. And I know that a lot from theory and I know it a lot from working with other people and watching them do it. I'm just offering it out there that even though I'm a so-called expert in this and I do grief and loss all day, I'm also not quite there yet. And I think that's fine. I think it's totally fine, but I also like, you know, sort of that concept of manifesting, which is really just a big word for yearning, you know, I'm yearning for that. And so I'm going to see, I'm just going to see what happens with it. Cause I think it's, I think it's such, we can all do, I think we can all strive for goals like that, but I will say if you need somebody to tell a good story to, or wow, or be excited, like I'm your girl. Cause I love a good story. Oh, you're in trouble now. I'm going to tell you all the time. This was like beyond, I I could sit here and talk to you all day. I mean, I just, I, I love your writing. I love your baking. I really do. 
too. I'll put all the stuff in the show notes so people can interact in there and go and see it. But I'm just really excited. You know, you said you're not sure if there's a fifth book. I, I feel confident there is, and I can't, can't wait to see what it is that your life wants us to hear more about in terms of how you think, partly just because you really do have this way of adding humor and speculation and joy into things that are you know, not the easiest thing. So I am so appreciative of it. I'm so grateful for this conversation today. And I, yeah, I just hope we hear so much more from you. When is the cooking show happening next? Do we already know? Yeah, I have a few. I'm not sure when this is going to air, but I have, and people, by the way, people can always go back to go on YouTube and search Mighty Blaze, Blaze Baking with Rach and all the episodes live there forever. In October 15th, I'm having on two authors together, Cindy Munchnik and Jen Curtis, who wrote an awesome book called The Parent Compass. Yeah, it's so good. And we're going to bake healthy-ish brownies and we're going to talk about raising teens and college admissions. And Healthy-ish. I love it. Oh my God. Well, they are all living. Yeah. I'm having on, so right? Jenna Blum, who started A Mighty Blaze, has a book coming out. So I'm having her on. She's usually my co-host. So there's a lot of cool stuff. I, I appreciate what you said about the fifth book. There are more books in me. There are more essays in me. I'm having a lot of fun now amplifying other people's voices. Ah, uh, so great. It's really fun. But I appreciate everything you're doing. I love listening to your podcast when oh, I take walks. No, and I'm, I'm so, so happy to be here today. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. Hey, everybody. Don't forget, if you like the podcast, go over to Apple Podcasts. And it's a little bit tricky. You have to click on the show, the show in general, not the episode, and scroll down to the middle, and it gives you the option to rate the show. And I would love for you to rate it. It really helps. It helps put the podcast in front of folks who are Googling grief um, and looking for a good podcast to help them through their hard time. So thanks so much. See you next week.